The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Okay, calling everyone back. We are going to have our scripture reading now from Exodus chapter 32. I'll give you all a minute to find your spots again. All right, so Exodus chapter 32. It can be found on page 90 if you have one of these Bibles with you. Um, But we will read all of Exodus chapter 32 today. If you can stand for the reading of God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on those tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that, had been, that, had made, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, and that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, 
Let any of you who have, who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of God. Good morning again. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Lord, this is a well-known passage. It's a weighty passage. It's a passage that's really looked back to across the rest of the Bible. And so I ask that you would be our true teacher this morning. I ask that I would get out of the way and your spirit would work in the hearts and minds of this congregation. We ask that you would make us a people fully devoted to you. You'd make us a people who grab hold tightly of your mercy and who look to Jesus alone as our hope. We ask it in his name. Amen. In 2005, three years before his suicide, the Pulitzer Prize-nominated writer David Foster Wallace gave a profound commencement address that would later be published as an acclaimed essay called This is Water. Now, Wallace's parents were atheists, and he himself was religiously ambiguous, but his experiences had led him to certain conclusions, which he freely shared in this speech. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the truly insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Well, this is a shocking piece of insight that we'll want to keep in mind as we look at one of the most famous scenes from the Old Testament, the tragedy of the golden calf. And what I hope you'll see about Wallace's comments and also about this account from ancient Israel's history is that they're all about us. We each have worshipped, perhaps are right now worshipping something created instead of the creator. But it's subtle, it's unconscious, and it's eating you alive. So we want to learn about the nature of false worship so that we can understand God's good anger against it as well as his merciful path of escape from false worship that's laid out for us in Christ. So here's our outline for today. We're going to be asking four questions. First, what causes false worship? So what choices or errors lead to it? Second, what does false worship do to us? If it's not a neutral force, if it's actually eating us alive, what does that look like? Third, what's the end result of false worship? If we persist in it, where is that going to leave us? And finally, is there any solution to this problem? So first, what causes false worship? It comes from an impatience that then causes us to replace God's words with our own words about reality. And that answer of impatience is found for us right there in verse 1. Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. If you remember chapter 24, verse 18, it told us that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was receiving instructions from God about the tabernacle, about the priesthood, about how he was going to dwell with them. So God had been detailing how they could draw near to him. And in the very next chapter, he's going to give instructions for moving on from Sinai toward the promised land. But apparently 40 days was just too long for this people. They wanted solutions now. And when God didn't provide that according to their own timetable, then they took matters into their own hands. And this is how all idolatry starts, with impatience toward God. He's not providing what I want when I think I need it, so... I'm going to devote myself to something more concrete that will deliver. And this impatience leads us to then substitute our word for God's word. The people knew that God was meeting them in covenant. They knew that his stipulations were very specific. You know, it was out of seeing his fire on the mountain, out of fear because of his holiness that they had actually said to Moses in chapter 20, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. So they had been terrified of breaching the limits set by a holy God, at least until they decide that he was being slow or not reliable enough for their own goals. And so they toss out his words in favor of their own words about what he should be like. And specifically, they're violating three commandments here. First, they have another God besides Yahweh, even though they call him by that name. Second, they do make a physical likeness of a created thing to represent God. 
And commandment three, they do take Yahweh's name in vain by saying that he is the one receiving worship here. So instead of waiting for God's commands, the voice of popular demand just takes over, and they treat Aaron, who had been left in charge, kind of like a lackey. It says they gathered themselves to Aaron. It could also be translated, they gathered themselves against Aaron, saying, up, make us gods. Why are they saying gods? Well, we're not totally sure they are. It's hard to tell because in Hebrew, Elohim can be plural or singular. Aaron only makes one golden calf, but on the other hand, in Egypt, the same statue of a bull could be used to worship the gods Hopi or Ptah or Osiris or Atum. So whatever the case, whatever's going on here, we can certainly observe that whenever you depart from worshiping the true God, your devotion is going to be divided. It's not that you're turning from, from God's way to worship just one other thing that is going to be the answer. You're turning from God's way in order to diversify, in order to hedge your bets. So we're impatient, we write our own words about what God is like, we demand divine provision on our terms, and we hedge our bets if he's not responding in ways that we can measure. And the one God suddenly becomes a collection of variations on God. We essentially say, I need what makes me feel good, and whatever accomplishes that must characterize God. Does any of this sound familiar? How many people grow tired of waiting for companionship God's way, and so they jump into unbiblical relationships? How many people aren't certain that God is protecting them or their loved ones, so they worship a version of him that will provide a mirage of control? How many people grow tired of waiting for deliverance from some sin tendency, and so they just adopt a view of God that excuses that behavior? Impatience is the motivation but what's happening in all these cases? Something in scripture has to then be ignored or changed, and our view of God is altered. He suddenly looks strangely like what the people in the surrounding culture are worshiping. And don't miss this. In the community of faith, idolatry is contagious. If it's not resisted all around, then one person's false worship is going to enable another person's. Idolatry begets idolatry. So in Aaron's case, his idol seems to be approval or popularity. It took very little for him to bend to these demands of the people, even though he's totally unable to justify it to Moses later. It's actually, he looks pathetic. In verse 24, he claims, So they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and how came this calf? Well, how about that? It just came out. He, he kind of left out the part where he quite intentionally fashioned it with a tool. And he wasn't the only one who, like Adam, just let the serpent have his day? Where were the 70 elders who had met with God on the mountain? Had they also made an idol out of approval or out of peace at all costs? When some of us decide not to wait on the Lord, it becomes easy for everyone else to turn to their objects of false worship as well. So idolatry is caused by that impatient thought I don't know how much I can trust God to give me what I need or what I want. I'd better take matters into my own hands. And then we speak words that override his words, and we recast him into something more to our liking. And this also begs the question, what carries greater weight with you for everyday living? Is it God's very words from Scripture 
or is it the advice of those seemingly godly friends or influencers who have great Christian models for getting the very things you most crave? Idolatry is a popular movement. A strong group comes to talk some sense into Aaron, and the next thing you know, all the people are taking off their gold rings. So you will know God's priorities for your life because they are explicitly stated in his word, and they will grow in your life slowly but steadily and often in a hidden manner. But you'll know your idolatrous priorities for your life because they will feel urgent and they will require you to overlook or change some of God's words, even if you're doing it unconsciously. And this leads to our second question. What does false worship do to us? If it's just a neutral thing, sure, it's wrong, but then is it you just realize it and move on? Or does it actually harm us and change us for the worse? Well, that's what scripture indicates. False worship makes us less like God and more like animals. There's a principle baked into the way we're created that goes something like this. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. It's articulated best in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands and feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, we chase these objects of worship that we think will make us more deeply human, more truly alive. And in fact, the exact opposite is true. And it's no accident that most idols in the ancient world were in the form of animals. Now, any biologist will tell you that scientifically speaking, we are animals. So what separates us from the others? Genesis tells us that we are uniquely created in the image of God. We were made to worship him and to be like him in his love, his creativity, his wisdom, righteousness, justice, mercy, goodness, his eternal life. But when we worship and serve created things rather than the, cre- the creator, then an exchange happens, an exchange. Psalm 106 describes this calf incident saying, they made a calf in Horeb, and worshipped a cast metal image. So they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. Well, how exactly does that exchange play out in Exodus 32? First, look at how the people had to divest themselves of gold jewelry in order to make the calf. Oh, so what? It's just jewelry, right? Well, yeah, but it's spoil that Yahweh had actually provided for them as they left Egypt when their oppressors freely gave them wealth and provisions to send them on their way in haste. So this is a way that their heavenly husband had bestowed honor on these former slaves as he took them as his people. But those tokens of adornment are now removed and they're given to an idol. And similarly, whenever we run after something, an object of worship other than God, there's a cost Something glorious about how he's made us or how he's provided for us is just freely given away. First, this, a token of their dignity is shed, okay? Well, soon after that, their behavior becomes base and animalistic. They have burnt offerings and then peace offerings, which are the ones that you can eat together like a feast. Notice the, noticeably absent are any sin offerings, 
And we're told that they rose early for this feast. They're, they're eager to get after this. And uh, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And there's a lot baked into this language. It's kind of like how in English we might say that they partied or they celebrated hard. The scene seems to be one of drunken excess, maybe sexual looseness, probably even an orgy. And that would have gone right with the worship that they were imitating from the surrounding nations. This is why God had gone out of his way in some of the earlier laws to specify there shouldn't be steps on the altar, quote, that your nakedness not be exposed on it. And he'd also given the priests those special linen undergarments. Yes, we're talking about that again. Uh, quote, lest they bear guilt and die. Because they were to be distinct from all these pagan religions of the time that were, were overtly sexual in their rituals. So often the priests of these pagan religions or the shrine prostitutes, they would just get it on right there as a sick way of encouraging these false gods to produce for them, to be productive. Whether it's agricultural or childbearing, rain for the land, They thought that what they did would make the gods do the same, and they would get the the, um, fruit of that. And here we have Yahweh's own people claiming that they're worshiping him through similar tactics. What they're really doing is exchanging the image of God for the nature of beasts. They are becoming what they worship. And we see this subtle motif Along those lines presented here, first in verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, I've seen this people. They are a stiff-necked people. And that phrase, stiff-necked people, is used another five times in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And it's a phrase born out of agricultural imagery about stubborn oxen. So they worship an ox and they take on its characteristics. They are stiff-necked people. Verse 20, Moses grinds the idol to powder and makes the people drink the dirty water like cattle. And in verse 25, they're described as having broken loose. They've cast off restraint like an animal. They've gone wild. So Bible scholar G.K. Beale puts it this way. The first generation Israelites did not literally become petrified golden calves like the golden calf they worshipped, but they are depicted as acting like out of control and headstrong calves, apparently because they are being mocked as having become identified with the spiritually rebellious image of the calf that they had worshipped. What they had revered, they had come to resemble, and that resemblance was destroying them. Okay, but how does all this translate? I mean, we don't worship animals, right? No, but the principle holds true for abstract idols too. If you worship the iPhone life, then you're going to have too many apps open in yourself and you're going to get drained of energy easily. If you worship video games, you're going to have big fantasies but be detached from the real world. If you worship power and control, you will become a bully, an abuser, a manipulator, If you worship money and stuff, you will become cold and calculating, unable to be freely generous. If you worship your family, you will become tribalistic and unable to care for others or even let them in except on terms that absolutely benefit your loved ones. But if you worship the one true God, you will become beautiful and glorious in all the diverse ways that he is. As people created in his image, as people gathered in his name, he has adorned us with a certain amount of glory. 
But as we use what he's given us to devote ourselves to something other than him, then that gold will be ground up in our sight. And just like the Israelites were made to drink of it, and then they'd have this striking object lesson of then seeing that gold dust in their own excrement, we should realize that the same degradation and waste happens when we take the gifts and the honor that God has bestowed on us and then devote them to false worship. Now, it may be easier for us to see how some sin patterns make us degraded and animalistic, maybe an addiction to substances or porn. But here's the thing. All sin patterns are idolatries, and all sin patterns are addictions. So where is your addiction? What is it that if you can't get it, it makes you desperate like a caged animal? What need can make you rabid and suddenly hostile toward others? What potentially good thing in the way that you pursue it makes you somewhat degraded, less like the image of God and more like a beast of instinct? What is it that as you pursue it, you can be very clever for your own survival, but you become quite thoughtless toward others who stand in the way? Remember, we're talking about you. We're not talking about the person that you've got in your mind, like, oh, I hope so-and-so hears this. No, where is your idolatry? We're not always able to see ourselves rightly. And so it's probably a good idea for each of us to ask those who know us best. If you're taking notes right now, write that down. Ask someone else about my idolatry. But don't just ask that person who wants your approval and so they might be tempted to enable your idolatry. They probably have been. Don't ask that person. Ask the person who, you know they love you, but sometimes they also scare you with how brutally honest they can be. Ask that person. Ask them, when are the times that you're most running on instinct instead of faith? Ask them, what makes you cagey? Ask them what it is that you deeply want and are so impatient for that you can make your own personal code for life in order to make that happen. And then when they tell you the truth, don't argue about it or rationalize it. Instead, confirm it with other mature believers and ask for their prayer and their help. But why? Why would I ever put myself in such a vulnerable position like that? Because you want to avoid what false worship leads to. Next question. What is the end result of false worship? Answer, we're going to see that false worship creates distance with the true God, and it leads to the destruction of many. And we see this starting in verse 7. You know, dozens of times already in Exodus, God has called Israel my people, and he's talked about how he brought them up out of the land of Egypt with a purpose. But here, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, when one of my boys is being somewhat out of control, hard to handle, I may try to pass him off to Sarah and say something like, excuse me, miss, your son seems to need some attention. But of course, I'm only joking. God's not joking here. Like, this is, this is serious distance that's been created between him and the people. Is that hard for us to understand? You know, some of us in Life Group recently, we were looking at the theme of the church as the bride of Christ. And that perspective is, is helpful for us here. 
Because what happened back in chapter 24 was like a wedding. It was like a formalization of a covenant between God and the people. Vows were made. But now, just a short time later, that all seems to just be tossed in the dumpster. Imagine that on your honeymoon, you found your new spouse with someone else. And what's worse, they were calling that person by your name. That's a taste of how God felt about this calf worship. Does God's coldness here bother us? If so, that might show that we don't really want a relationship with a good God as much as we want validation of who we are apart from him. But trust me, you want a God who gets angry at evil. And false worship is the source of all evil. So whenever God feels distant, I mean, there could be a number of reasons for that feeling, but one question we can ask is, have I been wanting and pursuing something more than I want and pursue God, who is the source of all good? If so, then confessing that idolatry is where we need to start. But if we aren't willing to realize and repent of our false worship, then that's when things really get scary. Let's read verses 25 to 29 again. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gates of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, given the whole population of 2 million, 3,000 is a relatively small percentage, but still, the shock from that would have definitely been felt in the camp. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. What in the world is going on, and, and what are we to make of it? Certainly this is one of those times when we need to notice the differences between the time of the Old Covenant and the times of the New Covenant. The future of God's people today is no longer tied to that physical line of ethnic Israel. So we don't need to strap a sword to our sides to, to protect the purity of the community. But that doesn't mean that this is meaningless for us. In the New Testament, we're shown that, the, the, that persistent and unremorseful idolaters they're to be directly shepherded, they're to be warned, and they're to be removed from church membership. Excommunication is our attempt to warn of the final judgment where all will be sorted. So when there's unrepentant, persistent idolatry, we can no longer say that those people belong. We can't feel an obligation toward them. We have to cut them off, not physically from this life, but formally from the church. And so, if we persist in false worship, and if the church is functioning properly, then we will be cut off from the people of God until such a time as we would experience true heart change. No matter how religious we had looked or how long we had belonged, lines have to be drawn for the sanctity of God's people. Do we have that same commitment and urgency as these courageous Levites to fight for purity? Do we understand sin to be hateful and deserving of death, something that has to be eradicated from ourselves and from the life of our community? 
do we see like Moses when he, he took those tablets from the very hand of God, he broke the tablets because he wanted the people to see that you can't have both a God of your own making and covenant with the true God. Do we feel that strongly or are we complacent about it? False worship creates distance from God, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. But that's not the only result of persistent false worship. There's the removal that's not done by God's people, but by God himself. Verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So just as here in the old covenant, God removed the idolaters from his realm we're told in Revelation 21.8 that as for idolaters, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this is a serious matter. We have all devoted ourselves to imitation gods, to substitute gods, so that we can break loose from waiting on God and exercise our stiff-necked wills to get what we want when we want it. And if we persist in living like that, even with it's a, if it's with a Christian veneer, that will end in destruction. Which brings us to our final question. Is there any solution to this problem? Praise God, yes, there is. God's mediator must resolve our false worship problem. God's mediator is the only solution. And we see this in two sections. First in verses 10 through 14. Notice <clears throat> this is where the, the whole scenario rightfully should have ended. If we only had God's justice in view, uh, he says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So essentially, the plague that killed some of them at the end of the chapter, that should have been the end for all of the people of God if only his justice were in play. He suggests to Moses that he's just going to take them out and then he's going to use Moses as sort of a new Abraham figure and start a new lineage through him. But um, right then, something really important happens. Moses doesn't grasp for that offer of greatness, but instead, as God's man, he stands between God's wrath and God's people. And he does this in three ways. First, he says, God, remember, these are your people whom you rescued out of Egypt with great power. Implication, is that all going to be for nothing? Was it just arbitrary? Second, Moses says, think about your reputation, God. If the Egyptians hear that you just brought people out here to kill them, that doesn't look very great. But we know you are great, so won't you make your greatness known? And third, he says, remember your promises to the patriarchs. You have to accomplish that. Here are Abraham's descendants, so you promised to make them a great nation, no conditions. And then in verse 14, God agrees with Moses' logic. And he relents from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Side note, you can and you should pray like this for yourself and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can pray like, Lord, you saved us out of slavery to sin. Was that just to drop us now? What will your enemies think if you let your people be destroyed in the wilderness, so to speak? Don't you remember your promises to complete a good work? 
and to sanctify and one day glorify all those whom you justified. So show us, God, show us how you keep your promises. You know, he actually loves it when we pray like that, when we speak his own words back to him. He loves those prayers. He answers those prayers. But okay, does God actually make decisions like this? Well, I think I'm going to destroy them, but oh, maybe not because Moses is making a fuss. Does God make decisions like that? Yes and no. The truth of the matter is God himself opened the door here for Moses to intercede for the people. Why, why does he bring up what he's about to do? And why does he insist that Moses leave him alone when Moses hadn't even gotten in his way yet? It kind of reminds me of those like outraged teenage boys who are like, I'm going to beat him up. Don't try to stop me. And, and all the time they're just counting on someone's going to stop them, right? Uh, maybe that's like a pathetic version of what's going on here. It was God's plan that Moses would play this role. And God himself is stirring up Moses to fill the shoes of mediator. Why? Because this is staged like an exaggerated play-acting version of what it was already decided that Christ would one day do. I say that it's exaggerated because in a larger sense, God doesn't actually change his mind. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Which means there's something else going on here. And what it is, is that God is setting the stage. He wants Moses to intercede. God is not wildly reacting to this previously unforeseen tragedy of idolatry. No, he's using the first blatant failure of the old covenant to depict the foundation for the lasting covenant that would one day fulfill all of these pictures. Now, the second scene of Moses as mediator is found for us in verses 31 to 34. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, dash, notice he can't even really finish that sentence. There's not a good reason why God should forgive their sin. So he just kind of continues. Uh, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. He's referring to the book of life, the register of those who will belong with God forever. So either Moses really, really loves his people so much that he's really willing to be lost forever, or he knows God's character well enough to trust how this is going to end, or maybe both. But Moses puts himself in the middle of the problem at a potential loss to himself forever, so see the contrast here between Aaron as the bad spiritual leader and Moses as the true mediator. Aaron tried to excuse himself from any blame. Moses puts his own life on the line for Israel's sake. Aaron was too weak to restrain the people. Moses was, in a sense, strong enough to restrain even God. But in light of the whole Bible, the comparison we need to focus on isn't between Moses and Aaron, but between Moses and Christ. Moses is a better mediator than Aaron, but he's still not the mediator that the people truly need. Hence the non-answer answer from God. The people are left in kind of a limbo. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Moses wanted to take the fall 
for his people, but he wasn't able. He had beautiful intentions, but he was an insufficient savior. He wasn't a spotless sacrifice. So God wouldn't let him get blotted out for others. But one day, the greater Moses, Jesus, would be blotted out so that, as Acts 3 says, our sins could be blotted out. Only Jesus could pass through oblivion and come out victorious on the other side. And that is the mediation that Israel ultimately would have to wait for, but which we can see clearly. And this interaction in chapter 32 prefigures it all because Jesus' mediation was already decided at this point. It was decided between the Father and the Son from before the foundation of the world. So while this story deserves to end in destruction, it doesn't end. There's much more. There's this much more. Why? Because our merciful God wanted there to be. He provided the mediator. And in the work of that mediator, Jesus, God's mercy and God's justice coexist. God tells Moses what is happening down on the mountain precisely because God is near and God knows. And he planned for what would happen long before this story ever started, which only goes to show that false worship tries to solve a problem that doesn't exist. False worship is a crazy loss of perspective because if you think about it, that very morning before they made the golden calf, what had they done? They'd gone out to gather manna that God himself had provided for them. And they were still camped right there in the shadow of the mountain with Yahweh's presence on it. He was near. And yet they felt that they needed to fill this gap of his absence. And we are very much the same in our own impatience. So we grasp for and we demand things from our experience with Yahweh. And so we worship what we want him to be. Well, we see in this passage that God responds to idolatry with great wrath and with great mercy. And so the question lingers, which side of those responses will you be on? The false worship is spoken of as if all the people were involved in it. Everyone seems complicit here, even Aaron, even the Levites. They're all guilty, just as we have all fallen into the worship of created things rather than the creator. So think about how that's true in your own life right now. What have you been devoted to more than God? How have you distorted who God really is? How have you recreated him in your own image rather than you being transformed into his image? Identify that false worship in your life. And then realize, just like in verse 26, God's mediator is calling for a distinction in the camp. Do you hear him calling to you today? Who is on the Lord's side? Will you answer? Will you get up from what you were doing? Will you gather to Jesus and visibly renounce the false worship that you were participating in? Once you do that, then you'll be in a position to help others to do the same. Notice that he doesn't call for those who had no guilt to take action. That was, everyone was guilty. But those who were willing to stop their idolatry and return to the Lord, then they were charged with the duty to help protect the community of faith against those who would make idolatry the accepted norm. So as you grow in Christ-like character, will you become more like Moses? 
which is another way of saying, will you become more like God? Will you show mercy even to those who have sinned against you while also maintaining a right anger against idolatry? And will you be that voice of Jesus in this context, asking of your brothers and sisters, who's on the Lord's side? And when you see your brother or your sister polishing an idol, a false version of, of God, and they want you to go along with it, um, they're ignoring warnings that are from God. They are grasping for immediate comforts that aren't from God. Then you need to speak up and you need to smack that idol out of their hands, even if it creates tension in the camp, even if it offends them. Why would you do that? Because you love them and you love the church. And you love the God whose reputation rides on the purification of a people. And you are becoming like what you worship. A true friend in the image of Jesus, the mediator. So let's ask for his help in all this. God, we ask that by your spirit you would do a great work in us today. Where we would grow exponentially in our hatred of sin. We ask that you'd show us the idols in our own life, that we'd find them detestable, um, and that we would get up from those activities and we would come and gather to you, Jesus. And Lord, we ask for this courage to be a, a source of, um, of this rally cry in the camp calling people back to Jesus, away from idols, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way that, that is, um, can only be done by those who have been and are being saved from idolatry themselves. Lord, cause us to love each other to that extent where we're willing to get in each other's faces, make each other uncomfortable, and slap those idols from each other's hands. And we ask that you do this work so that you would look very great and so that all the world could see that you have saved us from slavery to sin and you are bringing us to your promised land and you have tabernacled among us. You're not far. You are near. You've given us everything we need. So we praise you, God, and we ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.